Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Hughes Hubbard partner, Mike DeBernardis for another episode of The Corruption Files. We decided to go contemporary for our last episode of the year, and we're going to do one of the most significant FCPA enforcement action resolutions of 2022, the ABB settlement. So, Mike, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom, and, and looking forward to talking about something uh, a little more recent. Uh, there's a lot, lot to unpack here. So let me give a little recitation of the facts, Mike. Uh, ABB got into trouble in South Africa where they were trying to steal, purloin, or perhaps take over for another contractor with uh, the power company, Eskom, the state-owned power company. So clear FCPA jurisdiction as a state-owned enterprise. They identified a corrupt Eskom employee or official who could help them, and he suggested they retain a third party, a uh, corrupt third party who the bribes would be paid through. They agreed upon a contract price. They agreed upon a bribe schedule, and part of that started with a bribe, uh, a, a prepayment bribe before the contract was actually awarded to ABB. Um, ABB had set up an entire team to capture uh, this, and indeed it was called the capture team. And um, it was run out of ABB's corporate headquarters in Switzerland, uh, largely without the knowledge of the South African subsidiary, except at the very top. But uh, as with all thieves and no honor among thieves, the th corrupt third party uh, decided they wanted to keep the prepayment, figuring it was work they had done, and so they got crosswise with ABB and the corrupt Eskom official. ABB ended up hiring another third party uh, who was able to pay the bribe uh, through a contractual mechanism where variances are, were granted for the scheduled contract price and the bribe payments funding was built into the variances. The uh, both corrupt agents were able to get through the ABB uh, standard supply chain process through extraordinary means. And the settlement documents focused on the second one who did not qualify to work for ABB. And indeed, ABB supply chain sent an expert from the United States uh, to try to remedy this. They couldn't remedy it. Uh, and the um, supply chain expert was by hook, nook, or crook, pressured into approving the corrupt third party, which he did. So uh, 30, I think 35 million total in bribe paid, uh, several hundred million in profits for ABB. But that really doesn't even begin to touch the significance of this because it made ABB the first three-time loser under the FCPA. So not a twice recidivist, a thrice recidivist. 04, 2010, and now... 2022. And that had everyone's attention and got everyone's attention. Um, and I suppose we should deliver the punchline now. So spoiler alert, ABA, ABB got a great resolution. Uh, no monitor, uh, $315 million in fines and penalties, and um, CCO certification. So I went through that pretty fast, uh, but there's a lot to unpack. So maybe you want to start unpacking and let's see where, how they got to this, what we both think is a, a fabulous resolution. Yeah, gr a great, 
I mean, it's, it's well, look, it's all, it's all relative. It's, it's a, it, it's hard to, 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 to say that $315 million is a great result, but, but in the, in the context it is, um, there, there's so much here to touch on. I, I, I when the, when this was first, um, announcing before it was announced the wall street journal, um, uh, had a little blurb, but that this was coming, um, the first thought was, oh, you know, we're going to see how the DOJ are they are they walking the walk um, for for what they've been saying about recidivists, right? This has been this has been the the one of the big talking points for the last two years. In this new administration is we're going to be tough on recidivists. This is not going to happen anymore. Uh, we're going to come down hard on recidivists, and then you know at the same time talking about how we're going to treat past misconduct when we're evaluating uh companies and and similar misconduct in the same exact area um is is going to be treated more harshly and so we you know i think we were all thinking that when this happened um that that the hammer would drop really hard and and um i we can get into the reasons why maybe it didn't or it, it dropped hard but was deflected <laughs> if we're going to keep using that metaphor um and, and really some of the things that abb uh, did really well um, to to get the root resolution it did, uh, but that, I think that for me was the, the first piece of uh, sort of the context that I looked at this whole thing under. And then in the conduct itself, you, you talked about um, really I think two two things um, that stood out as troubling, as as lessons learned, as as things for for compliance folks to pay attention to. Um, and we can take them in turn as you'd like, but, but the first one that jumped out to me was, um, you know, the, the, the second subcontractor here got caught up in, in ABB's due diligence process, red flags all over the place about whether this subcontractor could do the work. Um, and it, it couldn't, but, um, they ultimately, business ultimately got a waiver. Um, the compliance department said, wait, there's some issues here and the business got a waiver from the, the, the regular process to, to move forward anyway. Um, and it's a, that's a really, uh, that's, that's a big step. Those waivers are, um, I mean, they happen, it happens with my clients sometimes, but um, uh, the, the, the apparent lack of justification for, for that waiver here um, is, is really a big, I think one of the first big compliance failures you see in this case. Uh, I, I don't know if you have experience um, in, in your in your prior life, being asked to give these waivers, um, but that's a big ask, and and usually there's you need a lot of there's a big justification needed to do it. It doesn't seem like that was the case here. Uh, uh, correct on all fronts, and uh, the I think the jig was up when they named the teams who were after these contracts because they called them the capture team and the sales shark. <laughs> and I think that that really spoke about uh, what ABB's intent was. And then the waiver granted, I really saw that, Mike, in terms of a, a control override. And there I thought about the Halliburton, South Africa or, or Mozambique uh, SEC FCPA enforcement action where the corrupt agent couldn't make it through Halliburton's agent process, but they switched over to bring them in as a supply chain representative. And somehow, even though they didn't meet the requirements, 
They didn't specifically say a waiver was granted, but they got through. And so we've seen that in other um, enforcement actions. And it's a clear red flag. And it's a clear red flag when a waiver is granted. And it's a clear red flag when the waiver is granted largely because the subcontractors already working on site, right. uh, meaning they've, they've hired them and they've employed them prior to doing any of this due diligence. The parties involved in the, in the waiver process were both uh, the unfortunate U.S. representative who granted the waiver, but also the corporate headquarters in Switzerland and uh, the very head of the South African operation. So we had uh, pretty good knowledge and intent at the highest levels. But in terms of lessons, you, I think, hit it on the head that uh, compliance has to have oversight into this, and they need to have oversight. Uh, I thought, um, really, I, I know I made light of the names of those uh, capture team and sales shark, but that alone told me compliance needs to have a look under the tent uh, to see what's going on here. And the, uh, the mechanism by which the pot of money was created to pay the bribes through this variance um, I've long advocated that compliance needs to have some oversight in high-risk jurisdictions over the billing process, mm -hmm. because often they'll bake the bribes into either a discount or an overage on the charge, recognizing uh, you or I may not be able to determine if a $100,000 bribe is baked into a overage or a variance of a $3 billion contract. That, that could be a really difficult thing to do, but, um, Compliance needs to have some visibility into all of that. And it really spoke, uh, I thought, sort of the technical side of how this was effectuated. But as you said, and as I tried to articulate, we were all just stunned at the, um, at the result. And I really wanted to unpack with you how, the D how we might think the DOJ thought through this. And, and I didn't really uh, talk about this at all in the recitation, but this seemed to have a large significance and it was the following, the almost self-disclosure. Yep. And there was a lot of ink about this. Uh, ABB did not self-disclose. They did not receive a self-disclosure credit either under the sentencing guidelines or under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Apparently they intended to self-disclose called up the Department of Justice and scheduled some sort of meeting. It's not clear if it was in person or virtual uh, where they intended to uh, self-disclose the South African situation. But before they could hold that meeting, the story broke in the press. But uh, ABB was able to convince the Department of Justice this had been their intent and they were not aware that this story was ongoing in the press. And they really spent a couple of paragraphs going through that little recitation, which I, I struggled with that for some time. And I finally kind of came down, Mike, thinking it created a level of trust and credibility, trust by the DOJ and ABB and credibility, uh, which I think that's what informed this result was that the DOJ found ABB's efforts credible from the start, both in terms of the putative attempt at self-disclosure, then during the pendency of 
the investigation all the way through the remediation. Um, maybe I get your thoughts on any or all of that. Yeah, I think the key thing you said there, and, and I, I obviously I, I don't have any inside knowledge here, but it seems that trust uh, was really important for the ultimate result. Trust, I think, ultimately was really important for the decision not to impose a monitor, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit too. But um, trust early on in the process that the company uh, was was trying to do the right thing um, was was hugely important to this result. Um, and it, it's clear that um, that the the DOJ and SEC both were impressed with some of the remediation that that ABB, ABB took that. They were impressed with the compliance team that they put in place and had the trust in that compliance team to self-report rather than imposing an independent monitor. So I think that's really important. I also wonder if you're DOJ and, and you've been talking big about punishing recidivists, but then you have a recidivist who comes in, tries to self-disclose essentially, and does everything right. Um, part of you has to think, well, you know, when we're talking about incentives, we also want to encourage recidivists to do the right thing after they discover misconduct. Um, and I think that I think that is part of it, right? You you had a company that yes, this was their third time, and yes, that's really serious, um, but apparently did everything else right in terms of disclosing the conduct, cooperating. We can talk about what they did to cooperate, and then then this this incredible remediation and all these compliance steps they took um, that that the DOJ wants to incentivize other potential recidivists to take the same steps. They didn't get the result they maybe would have gotten um, if, if they didn't have this past misconduct, but they still got a really good result. Mike, I've interviewed a lot of uh, lawyers such as yourself who do investigations, who sit across the table from the DOJ in a variety of cases, FCPA and others. And to a man and woman, they always tell me, that it's your credibility is the single most important thing, starting with the first question the DOJ asks after you self-disclose. And if you don't tell them the truth or you're cagey or the documents aren't tied down after you tell them they are, it, it really makes things difficult down the road. But here I felt like I saw not a discussion of ABB's counsel, but a really a discussion of ABB themselves. And I think, um, I think that's a really significant point in the points you brought out. And, and now let me go from the self-disclosure to the uh, cooperation during the investigation. And the only, uh, we have the standard boilerplate language in the uh, Department of Justice DPA, but in the SEC resolution, there was the following line, and I'm just going to quote from it. Quote, ABB's cooperation including included real-time sharing of facts learned during its own internal investigation. And I have to cite to Matt Kelly because he's the first person that, that really identified that. But Matt convinced me he thought that meant this was the speed that we talked about in the Monaco memo of turning over documents. And the use of the word real-time literally meant that. They were getting information and in real time turning it over to the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts were on the investigation part and why the DOJ really thought that uh, ABB went above and beyond. Did you see something different? No, I, I saw I saw the same thing, and, and you know it, it's always it's hard to to parse through 
um, when, when the, when either the DOJ or SEC mentioned that the company offered extraordinary cooperation, including the including is often very similar from, from case to case uh, in terms of making foreign witnesses available for interview in the U.S. and providing uh, documents and, and um, you know, uh, offering translations of, of foreign language documents and that kind of thing. Um, the, the, the speed um, in which the material was provided, and I, I did note the SEC used real time, in real time, uh, I thought was really interesting. Uh, that, that is, um, if, if you haven't done one of these investigations, that might not seem like a, that big of a deal. Uh, but if, if they were truly providing information in real time, uh, that's, that's one, incredibly difficult. Uh, two, really kind of risky uh, in terms of the efficiency of the investigation, not just, not just for your client, but in terms of the efficiency of the investigation, because we, we've all been in situations who've done this, who, you know, you see a document and you think it means one thing at the moment and, and uh, you get all excited about it because you think it means one thing and then you, you continue your investigation and you talk to a few people and they put it in context for you and you realize, oh, actually, you know what, that, that wasn't what we thought it was. Um, and if, if you start providing those type, that type of material to, to the Department of Justice or the SEC and you have them start to get really excited about it, uh, it's harder to walk them back off of that, I, I think. I would, I would imagine. I would imagine. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's, there's some efficiency to at least completing certain segments of the investigation before, before providing it so you can give a clearer picture um, rather than doing it piecemeal. Um, so I'm actually, I'm, I'm pretty curious as to what that real time means. Does that mean literally, oh, we found this document we think is interesting, let's send it over? Uh, or does it mean, you know, every week let's update, let, let's provide an update on, on what we found, you know, so that, so that we're kind of doing a more regular update, but not sort of every document or every interview providing the information. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I did notice it. I think that is consistent with what we saw in the Monaco memo, that that's what they're hoping for. Um, but uh, actual real-time for providing information, that's, there's a lot of, lot of risk. It paid off here if that's what they did. Uh, let's go now to the third component, extensive remediation. But I want to start with not the remediation itself, but the team ABB put in place. Um, we both know and have worked with the ABB. She's called Chief Integrity Officer, Natalia Shaheda. And um, Natalia was with Weatherford when I first met her. She later went to Technique, where I know you, you met her and worked with her. And now she's with ABB. And I'd like to really to take a few minutes to talk about how one person can really make a difference. And if I could tie it back to one of the uh, <clears throat> of our earlier episodes with Parker Drilling, where Dan Chapman uh, literally was called out after uh, Parker got what uh, was a great resolution, having had C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme. Uh, Dan had been with Baker Hughes during their journey uh, after uh, they signed their settlement. And then at Parker, he helped them get through theirs. And then he did it again at a, a company after Parker Drilling. And having someone who has successfully concluded a resolution or been a part of a team that successfully concluded resolution with the Department of Justice, I think can make a big difference. And I just want to specifically call out Natalia 
for being really at the top of the profession and the top of her game here. But maybe get your thoughts on something we really don't talk about enough, which is can that professional person really, really make a difference or how, how much of a difference can they make in your estimation? Uh, it's huge. I, I don't think you can overstate it. Um, I think it's huge for the impact it can have on the Department of Justice and the, and the Security, Securities Exchange Commission on, on the way that they're perceiving the work that, that the compliance team is doing. That, I, you know, I mentioned trust before, but when, you, when you're dealing with someone who has experience uh, in managing and improving, enhancing compliance programs at companies that have had uh, violations, that's, that's incredibly important. And then it's incredibly important internally. There, there are so many um, difficult uh, aspects to taking uh, a company where there was a major compliance failure and, and improving it and improving it across the board. Um, and having somebody who's done it before is, is so helpful. I, I, uh, many years ago, I, I was working on, on a team that was a, a monitor for a company that had had a FCPA violation. And um, they brought in a new chief compliance officer and she was lovely and um, had, had, was incredibly bright and had a lot of um, good experience, but, but not direct experience in the space. Uh, and it took us a really long time as a team to to get comfortable that they had the right compliance team in place because uh, it was it was a lot more effort in sort of understanding how she's going to handle different situations. When you have someone who has a track record like Natalia does, uh, it, that is that has got to be really meaningful. Uh, Natalia, uh, I jokingly say, worked on uh, was a part of rather the first. Now I have to say the first dream team. And that was at Weatherford when she worked under Billy Jacobson. Um, and um, I said, now she leads Dream Team too. And that, I think, uh, the, the level of professionalism can and does make a difference. And we're going to get to some of the things I think she did in the remediation. I guess we can maybe talk about those now, the things that were called out in the DPA. First, all of the principals and, and persons involved were terminated. Uh, there was no discussion of clawbacks, uh, but the company really moved to create a truly best practice compliance program, uh, implemented a robust data analytics uh, program, really seemed to take making sure culturally this was not acceptable to happen again going forward. All of these seem to make huge um, impacts on the Department of Justice beyond simply the technical components of the compliance program. But that really led to the monitor issue. And um, ABB did not get off scot-free. They have a very, I think, robust uh, reporting schedule to the DOJ where they have to physically, or, or not physically perhaps, but have to report quarterly to the DOJ with the, uh, about the implementation of their compliance program. But I think we have to tie that really back to the beginning at the attempt to self-disclose, the hiring of Natalia and empowering her to do what she has done with her team, that the DOJ really trusts ABB uh, to move forward with oversight, trust but verify, uh, still channeling their inner Ronnie Reagan, so that's good. 
but they've given ABB uh, an opportunity to continue to prove to them because they have proven to them with the attempt at self-disclosure with the extensive cooperation and now the extensive remediation. I just wanted to maybe get your thoughts on how really, if at all, you see these playing together to get to the monitor issue. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this goes back to, to what I mentioned early on, that, that trust was so important. Um, I think the two things we discussed, trust and credibility, um, are, are slightly different. And, and here, the trust is so important in that um, th there's clearly a level of trust for the team that ABB has in place. And their council, I'm sure, is going to help with, with the compliance reporting and testing. Um, that they have the capability, one, to do the, the, a thorough job in, in doing the, the testing that, that the, that, that's required. Uh, and two, we're gonna report on it truthfully, right? I think that's, that's the, uh, another important part. Um, I, you're right, they didn't get off scot-free. Um, uh, the, 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 the conditions in the DPA um, are, it's gonna take a lot of work and I'm sure a lot of resources are gonna go into the, the self-testing and reporting that they have over the next few years here. Um, but it's certainly uh, from a company perspective, a preferred situation than to have an independent monitor in place. Um, and I think that they they got there, I'm speculating a bit, of course, but I think they got there from what they did to remediate the issues and improve their compliance program before the DPA. And then building up that trust that, hey, we, we can we can do this, we can do this testing and we're gonna to continue to do some of the, the things um, that were in the DPA. Uh, and you can trust us to report on our performance uh, truthfully so that we can kind of work collaboratively to make sure we are we remain just a thrice recidivist. And, and I don't even know what the, I don't even know how to say fourth, uh, 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 but it, it's, it, it, those things go absolutely hand in hand. So let's maybe circle back to one of the points you raised very early in your remarks, um, Mike, which was, the DOJ has made clear uh, over the past 15 months their distaste for recidivism and that they're going to bring the hammer down. Yet here uh, we saw perhaps a, uh, not a hammer, but certainly a fine and penalty, certainly conditions, but something less than, than we may, may have anticipated is um do you think that this either uh, takes away from the credibility of the department on how serious they're going to treat recidivists, or is it that the DOJ really wants to reward this type of behavior, I want to say above and beyond, but certainly exemplary, and that uh, because of the third three-time recidivism, uh, because of the actions ABB took, the DOJ does not lose credibility in this case under this set of facts and circumstances, both in terms of the nefarious conduct which started this, but the response by the company. So I really actually think, and some credit I think is due here, that um, the, this resolution threaded the needle really well because um, the, the fine the total monetary penalty that was paid here uh, was significantly higher 
than it would have been had they were not a recidivist, right? The, the $315 million under their calculation um, was 25% off the middle of the, of the, the sentencing guideline range. Uh, whereas based on everything that they've said in terms of the remediation and the cooperation, at a minimum, you would think that ABB and other circumstances would have gotten 25% off the bottom of the range. So that difference is, I think, just doing the math really quickly, I, I think it's $135 million difference. So th that's that's absolutely very meaningful amount of money. I think anybody would agree. Um, uh, and so that's, that's, in this case, that was the cost of being a, a recidivist. It's $135 million. Uh, at the same time, um, aside from becoming a three-time offender, the company really did everything right. Everything you would want a company to do in if, if you were a regulator in responding to a, uh, an FCPA violation uh, in terms of at least, you know, reporting it as timely as, as they, they could, almost self-reporting as we discussed, um, cooperating, uh, extensive remediation, everything else was really perfect. And, and as I said in the beginning, you want to incentivize that from every company, even recidivists. So if you come down too hard on a company like ABB here and you have the next company come up, maybe they don't consider self-disposing. Maybe they uh, are, are sort of questioning the, the, the benefits of cooperating in real time. Um, and so that's not the incentive you want to set. So I, I, I really think that there was this, this resolution does do a good job of uh, getting to both both ends where you we are, are clearly punishing them more because th this is their third offense but we, we want to encourage companies to respond the same way if they have if they have similar um, situations that's a great way of putting it threading the needle uh, because I was looking at it in terms of how the DOJ solved this and I was concerned after I read the Wall Street Journal article that they really wouldn't communicate to us the actions taken by the company. And I felt like they did communicate that and they commit communicated that in the settlement documents. This was not a speech or in the DOJ press release, because that just pulled out of the, the DPA and the um, plea agreement. So I felt like the department really communicated solid information to the compliance community. First of all, in terms of ver some very specific lessons learned, on uh, bribery funding, third parties, external control overrides, uh, and those sorts of things, but also how you can meet uh, or beat and really get credit for under both the sentencing guidelines and the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, even if you don't self-disclose. So uh, I came out thinking after a lot of study and thought about this, that this really was a positive case, but more importantly, this was a huge win for compliance and for compliance programs, for compliance officers, for corporate compliance and the compliance profession going forward. I think that's a really good takeaway. I, I, I think, and I think it's absolutely right. Um, uh, if, if, if there's one lesson to take from this, it's, you know, if, if even beforehand, but, it, but certainly if you discover an issue, um, doubling down on compliance in that moment pays off. That is a, it's a, it's a good way to ensure you're gonna have the best possible resolution. Uh, and so if you are a uh, compliance practitioner, that's of course a message you, you want to have said. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're near yeah. the end of our time for this episode, but that uh, was a lot of fun visiting a contem 
contemporary case. And I look forward to uh, our next session together. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tom, and, and happy holidays and, and happy new year to all the listeners too.